0: Hey there, this is Andy Baker again, and you're listening to the Baker's Dozen podcast, where I serve up analysis of current TV series from the perspective of a development executive and screenwriter, and I do so 13 bytes at a time. This is FetCast number two, where I deep dive into episode two of the book of Boba Fett, The Tribes of Tatooine. So this episode's coming out a little bit later than I wanted. I had some scripts that I had to help with over the weekend. It was an interesting mix, actually. I was helping with a feature, TV Bible, and an interactive game. Fun stuff. And, uh, you know, keeps me on my toes working in lots of different areas because I'm, at my heart, a transmedia writer. I just love stories in whatever format they come. And as I enjoy talking about the elements of storytelling. And so I'm going to be doing so right now with the book of Boba Fett episode number two. And I found that the second episode was more satisfying than the first. It's flawed and imperfect, but more interesting. I'm along for the short ride since there's only seven episodes, but I'm not sure that I would be on board for a longer one. If this was a network show where you had 22 episodes, granted that would cost an arm and a leg but or even the prospect of three to five seasons i i i don't know that they could sustain it but i'm along for now too anyway without further ado let's just jump into our bullet points this week one One. asking us to do homework So I've spent some time over the past week going back and looking at the Boba Fett backstory. Clone Wars with young Boba trying to get revenge against Mace Windu. Fennec in Bad Batch. Both Boba and Fennec in The Mandalorian. Even subjected myself to Attack of the Clones so that I could reacquaint myself with the Django Fett backstory. Anyway, it's so interesting to me with a series like this where... There's so much history, backstory, they kind of have to thread a needle where they know that Star Wars, the extended universe, has a devoted audience that will hold them to account uh, for any deviations. Of course, they can work their way around it by saying non-canon versus canon, but that aside. But the audience, you always have to remember, if you're one of those truly dedicated people who listen to things like podcasts and watch every single show and go on message boards and all of that, that kind of fandom, That is a very small piece of the audience compared to newer fans, casual fans. And so the show needs to appease the people who are obsessed and appeal to them while at the same time, trying to require, you don't have to do homework and have been invested in the star Wars universe for decades to enjoy it and to understand what's going on in front of you. And so again, they're trying to thread that needle. This show needs to be able to stand on its own while also participating in the tapestry that is Star Wars. And if you knew nothing about Boba Fett, maybe beyond the few minutes in the original trilogy and have only vague recollections where it's like, okay, they're making a show about him, so he must have been big in the original trilogy, but of course he's not. He's only there for a few minutes. But if that's all you knew and you're watching this show, you have to look at this, okay, uh, Boba Fett, I, I seem to recall he was a bounty hunter and a badass, looked really cool. What does that have to do with this older, damaged guy wandering around the city on Tatooine, attempting to take over the Hut empire slash territory, but finding himself caught up in the drama involving a mayor and Jabba's cousins. He's getting his ass kicked. Um, being shown disrespect, but he's posturing like he's so he's the daimyo, but we don't really know what that means. It's maybe not terribly thrilling in in the sense that okay, how am I supposed to view this character and, and compare it to who I thought Boba Fett was coming into the show? It's a place to build from, but perhaps not what we were expecting. And then there's the whole backstory piece where it's, okay, we're going to fill you in on what Boba did after surviving the Sarlacc pit. And it's clear that they're expecting you to have watched The Mandalorian so that you can understand, okay, he was dressed as a Tuscan in Mandalorian. And so this is going to explain why that's the case. And we're going to explore the Tuscan culture. And again, it's interesting. And I think you can enjoy it for what it is in a short run. I don't know that it could sustain a longer series. I've been wrong about that before, but I I think they knew that this was going to be a one-shot. It's the book of Boba Fett. It is one sort of novel of story and then they're going to move on to other pieces of this universe and it makes sense this is an early show in what is presumably going to be a steady diet of star wars shows obviously we know obi-wan is coming along and there are other ones in the works and they're going to be honing in on what they want to do with this universe and what kind of stories work and so exploring an interesting character like boba fett is it's a good venue through which to explore this universe again I don't know that I necessarily am finding this version of Boba Fett deeply compelling, but again, I'm willing to go along for the ride. Two. Getting older sucks. So having done all of that homework, having watched all of the backstory pieces, I came away from it specifically having watched the Mandalorian episodes, wondering where the heck is that Boba Fett? Now, if you remember from The Mandalorian, assuming that you watched it, and who wouldn't have Mandalorian's amazing, Tamara Morrison, he's reprising his role in this series. If you remember that scene when Baby Yoda is up on the seeing stone, and Boba Fett has the conversation with the Mandalorian, and a whole bunch of stormtroopers show up, and man... Does Boba Fett slash Tamara Morrison just go to town on them? And we get a lot of big swings of the Tusken Raider pole, smashing helmets, and we see chunks of it shatter like it's made of clay. And more than that, Boba Fett is moving gracefully. And this is happening whether he's wearing the helmet. It's easier to do it when it's the helmet, but when it doesn't have to be the actor... And so you can get someone who's younger, more live, fitter. But even when the helmet is off and it is Morrison, he is moving better than He is just, it's more believable, the fighting that he's doing. And again, aging sucks, man. Obviously, we saw a big fight in this episode. And if you notice, the shots are shorter, the sequences are shorter. He doesn't do as much movement. And I I say this being egregiously aware that Morrison for his age is incredibly fit and can kick my ass all over the place. I'm 50. He's what, 61. He'd destroy me and we would all do well to be as fit as he is at his age. But I'm sorry, you just can't move in the way that we would expect Boba Fett to move. And that goes for Mignolwin and playing Fennec as well. It is, you're having to hide that age, although they're not shying away from it completely. But in a show where he's got to be playing a slightly younger version of himself with the Tusken Raiders, learning how to fight the way they fight, and then to see him present day, it's, they're having to hide or try to hide some of the limitations. And it takes me out of it where... I'll give you a a, a sort of a bad comparison, but it still works. If you watched, and I feel for you if you watched Raiders of the Lost Ark or, or Indiana Jones, the fourth one, the Crystal Skull one, which is just one of the most disappointing movies I've seen in my life. Watching Harrison Ford try to do Indiana Jones things at his age, and I say this loving Harrison Ford, it's just hard to watch because you're just limited because you're older and aging is rarely graceful. And even when it is, it's still limited. Anyway, just wanted to point out that one of the things that takes me out periodically of the episode is when we see the fighting start and i I don't like that my brain goes to this place but it's just oh old man fighting he would totally not win this fight even though he is boba fett it's just not the kind of fluid action that we would expect anyway enough of that rant time to move on three Three. expositional convenience one thing that kind of drives me nuts as a writer is when it's hard to do exposition dumps and have and weave it into a scene and have it feel natural that people would be talking about this and this is how they would behave but you notice it when it is not done with as much facility as it could be an example this opening scene where boba fett and fennec are wondering what are they going to do with the assassin And so the assassin is there and kneeling, having been dragged in, and you have Boba Fett saying, what do we know of this prisoner? And 88 tells us, well, he's a member of the Order of the Nightwind, and this seemingly is new information to Boba Fett. When you stop right there and ask yourself, okay, how would this truly play out? Where, okay, we're gonna investigate, Where this guy came from, what do we know about him based on the way he's dressed and the way he talks, and what do we know about him? And so 8D8 clearly had access to some information, and the moment that they had any information about the guy who tried to kill them in the street, Boba Fett would have been told. It's not that Boba Fett, that they would, 8D8 or anyone else would wait to tell Boba Fett until he asked in this very dramatic moment, he would know already. It Wouldn't have come up in this particular context. Now, it's a small thing. I get it. You always have to be mindful of this as a writer in that these are the kinds of choices when you have expositional convenience, if you keep doing it this way, it piles up. And even the most casual of viewer is going to start to feel that the unfolding of the narrative is artificial doesn't feel like it would really happen this way. And if you keep asking people, your audience to just go with you and let you share the information, however you feel it should be, even though that's not how it would likely happen within the world of the story, you keep pulling people out and they start feeling manipulated. And that's the last thing you want. Now you can do it and you have to do it sometimes, but little moments like this, they add up and. It's, there are other narrative choices that they make that I'm going to point out a little bit later in the episode. And all of those things combined, you keep getting reminded, this is a story written by people who, it's like a very compressed number of scenes, shorter episodes, and they're cutting some corners. Cut enough corners and it doesn't look like the thing that it was meant to look like because you kept cutting corners off and suddenly the shape is totally different. 4. The feel of Fett and Fennec. So just wanted to do a quick check-in on these two characters, and we've had two episodes, and so they've been established as to what we can expect out of these characters, given that there's only five more episodes. You have to do that pretty full speed to let us know what we're supposed to think and feel about them. And so in this scene here where Fett threatens to have the assassin's head taken off... And then the assassin curses him, and it feels in that moment, okay, then have people heard that Fett is soft, like you can curse him, and you're not going to do this, you're not going to chop my head off, and we don't really believe Fett's going to do it either, we don't really take him seriously as a mob boss or a crime boss, in part because he's being so quippy and tonally doesn't quite fit. Plus, he's told us he doesn't want to, he wants to rule with respect and not with fear, but that there's this softness to him. And so it's not believable. And I'm not entirely sure that's the best place for this character to be. And I'll talk about this later in the episode, but there are ways that they create moments to establish what a badass Boba Fett still is. That said, the artifice that they have to go through to establish that, to show that to us, is undercut by these moments here where you have the assassin backtalking him when his life is supposed to be on the line. And so it just reinforces our own questioning of the character, is he who we want Boba Fett to be? And it's so much so that we question Boba Fett That as soon as the assassin gets sent down into the rancor pit, I called out to the annoyance of my family that there's no rancor there, clearly. Or if there is one, it's a baby one, because we've been told that Fett's just not going to do that sort of thing. And yes, it's Fennec who pulls the trigger to send the assassin down, but this whole thing felt orchestrated. So it's, we're going to ask him, he's not going to tell us. And so we're going to send them down into the pit. And then we're going to slide our little chair over because people will think that's cool because that's what happened in the original trilogy. And people like being reminded of that. And hey, I'm a sucker for that. Just like anybody else, just simply seeing the building and seeing them walk in and that door pull up and all of that, it's, oh, I'm a kid again. And I'm watching the original Star Wars trilogy. But that aside, given how this plays out and and how orchestrated it feels it seems like fet Phet- did know the assassin that he's not going to be taking his head off and that they're orchestrating this whole conversation. He knows full well that this assassin is a member of the Night Wind in order of the Night Wind. And so, which gives some ripples back to that moment where he asks who this person is, is, this whole thing for show? Is it for show for us as the audience? Is it show for the assassins? So they're playing the assassin to get the information out of him. The whole scene feels a bit constructed feels manipulative, but anyway. And then you add in this element of Fennec and her constant use of humor, talking about how, oh, the wind they're overpriced, you're paying for the name. It's a funny line, but it's turning Fennec into the quippy sidekick, not the intimidating killer for hire. And I wonder what the decision-making there is in that you go back and look um, at Bad Batch and see what fennec is capable of and i had forgotten just how much violence the animated series how much it has had over the years you go back and watch clone wars there's a fair bit of death in there Uh, and then fennec is far closer to the cold-blooded assassin that we believe her to be than she is in this show and is that because they're live action? Is that because that's just the tone and feel they all agree that this particular show should have? It's interesting and it's something to keep an eye on because having soft Boba Fett and quippy sidekick Fennec takes the characters in a direction that uh, doesn't necessarily jibe well with the previous versions of them. So Anyway, just keep an eye on that. It certainly stands out to me that there are some tonal choices here which are very intentional, which I'm willing to go with it. I just don't know that it is perhaps what I was expecting it to be. Five. FWIP and the need to misdirect. Now, given what we have learned in this episode, the mayor saying that she is not responsible for the attack on Boba Fett and and telling Fett that he needs to look at who might gain from the attack on him. There is this need in stories to misdirect. It can't be the obvious person. So when the assassin attacks and we have heard from the major domo that you're okay, you're going to be have another delegation come to see you, and then they are attacked. And so we believe, okay, the mayor must be behind this. And now the mayor is saying, wasn't me. And hey, go to the bar and ask around. This need to misdirect is, it's hard to do with audiences now. Audiences know a lot more than they used to just because storytelling has grown ever more sophisticated and we see lots of stories and, you know, lots of great writers doing great things. And so we are trained now to look for things that maybe we didn't 20, 30 years ago. Anyway, given that the mayor is saying I'm not responsible and the tone of it feels like that's probably true, you then have to do the calculus, which when we're moving forward through a story and we're being a casual viewer and we don't want to look back, it works perfectly well. But if you're thinking about the show and you think back to everyone we've met so far and, you know, how the characters are working in the story, and we know on some level that we're being misdirected, then whoever is responsible for this assassin attack must be somebody that we have met at this point because, okay, we've had only two episodes, yeah, but that's two out of seven, and we've got these parallel storylines, so it's not like we're going to have five full episodes of stuff happening in the present time. We're gonna only get part of each of those five episodes. It feels if we meet a major character in episode three, four, or God forbid five, that is responsible for the attack and hired the assassin, that would be too late. And so who have we met? Fwip. And when the mayor says, go to the bar and figure it out, we're thinking, okay, you need to ask around, and then the Huts get into that mix. But you have to just look very hard at Fwip as a character And play the game of trying to figure out why would Fwip do such a thing? Who is this character? Enigmatic so far. But you can start to imagine a narrative where, okay, if you're running a bar like that, you spend money to keep the huts off your back. And okay, now we have Boba Fett as the daimyo. Now he has to be paid. You can't imagine that if you have a mayor who's probably taxing as well, And it would be, there's always the potential for violence. And if someone like FWIP were to be sick of having to appease everybody, it's can I just pay the daimyo or why am I stuck between the mayor and we had Hutt and then we had the what's his face and now we've got, you know, Boba Fett, it's there's too much turbulence. I'm sick of this. So I'm going to try to pit all of these people against each other, create some chaos so that ultimately she can be free and run her business as she wants to run it. And so you can imagine an arc here where we are made, because we side with Boba Fett, anyone who's doing something against Boba Fett, we're going to side with Boba Fett. And so the fact that Fwip is doing something, trying to kill him or make his life harder, and so chaos, we're going to think, okay, she's bad, but then... We get to have the flip right where she articulates her reasons for doing this. We just want freedom. We're sick of being under the thumb of thugs. And ultimately, wouldn't we maybe agree with that? And that given Fett wants to rule with respect and not with fear that will he ultimately agree with her. Is that sort of the arc that we're going to go on here? It, it strikes me as quite possible and also interesting. Put a pin in that. I'm curious to see if that's where things go. Six. Six. Running a family is more complicated than bounty hunting. Always pay attention when there is a really interesting line that is said, maybe even in passing where no comment is made at the time, but there seems to be a weight and a heft to it. So this line delivered by the mayor talking about, you need to go to the bar and find out what's really going on around here. That emphasis on running a family is more complicated than bounty hunting. Now our inclination once Fett ends up talking to FwiP, and I kind of just want to say that Fet FwiP FwiP Fett. It's just kind of fun. Anyway, the idea that okay, he asks around. Oh, don't the huts are now claiming this territory, and the hut cousins, their jobbs cousins, and so that's family. So that's the story they're telling us. But that also feels a little easy. So is there another family that could be complicated? And I'm just going to throw this out there. It's pure speculation, but it's based on the pieces that are in place. If you noted that when we've gone into the bar, the two servers who greeted them when they first came in and have been seen around, we've gotten shots of the one at the bar and the other one going up to FWIP. They are Twi'leks just like FWIP is. And there's also another Twi'lek, the mayor's major Domo. And we've seen that there are a number of different races here in town. So it's interesting that they are all Twi'leks and really these servers could have been anyone, but instead they have had them be the same race as FWIP so What's going on there? Are these family members, is the major Domo connected to FWIP? These two servers, are their roles going to increase? Because once we have met them and they've had moments, that establishes them as potential larger characters as the series unfolds. It'd be interesting to, is I mean, when you say running a family is more complicated than bounty hunting, and then they introduce a family, the huts. But maybe there's another family because as I said in the previous item, there is this emphasis on misdirection. Like you think you know the answer, but then it's satisfying to find out, oh, I don't really know the answer. And so you should always be looking for the second answer. And so there's a potential here for Fwip to have a family that she is, it's complicated because the major Domo works for the mayor and there's some complexity there, that maybe there are some tensions that we are not fully aware of yet that FWIP is trying to navigate. And also just to throw this in, the assassin, when the assassin says that he was working for the mayor, maybe it was the mayor's major domo who set up this deal and Acting, quote unquote, on behalf of the mayor, but not really, it would explain why the assassin so thoroughly believed that he was actually working for the mayor when in fact maybe he wasn't, because that's there's another family in town that we need to be thinking about, not just the huts. Seven, Seven. Bad Wookie. So we meet a bad Wookiee. We meet black Kersantin, um, I'm sorry, I just butchered that name. We get to see a Wookiee that is working for the Hutts and looks very intimidating, looks a lot different from Chewbacca, who is really our, when it comes to the movies, the original trilogy and beyond, we have limited interactions with Wookiees. And so this is a looks different, feels different, not a heroic character, and very distinctive to meet this character. And we got some quick history from Boba Fett that he is a gladiator from the death pits of Door, but you can't really be burdened with that history. I, I didn't really know of this character. I did a little bit of homework, and there are graphic novels and whatnot where you get to know this character. Anyway, the general viewer of this show wouldn't need to know this character other than, oh, it's a Wookiee who doesn't look a lot like Chewbacca, different color, far more intense, looks evil, got this really big gun. And we get all of this dramatic music. And so we know as TV viewers who have internalized the tropes of storytelling that this is going to become something, right? That there is going to be some fighting between this Wookiee and are anti-heroes and it makes sense we need other elements in the present day storyline more conflict there and so now it's been introduced with the huts and their wookie and it's very interesting to me again it's that dynamic of you have to think through can't really fight the huts hand to hand the the famous death of jabba the Hut is at the hands of princess leia who uses a chain and even that looked absurd right you can't have if Boba shoots the huts, then they're dead and it's over quickly. If they, But the huts can't fight the way that Boba Fett fights or Fennec fights the kind of fights that we would expect. And so you need to stand in for them, stand in for evil or the forces of antagonism to trade blows. And yes, the Wookiee has a big, powerful gun. And Boba Fett has all of his toys, but at some point, all of those will have to be tossed aside. Maybe even gladiator style, since they mentioned the whole gladiator thing. And they're going to be trading blows. Uh, and he's going to have to lean on his Tuscan Raider training to be able to fight hand-to-hand without guns. And, and I'm just riffing on this right now because I didn't think about it actually when I was putting my notes together. And this is starting to feel like a thing. Like you're going to have, the huts are going to be saying, we will fight for this land. And so we're going to put up our Wookiee, who's going to fight against him and Boba Fett's going to do the fighting. And uh, they're going to have to fight hand-to-hand, and that might be interesting. Anyway, I'll be curious to see where this character goes, because we're going to have to, you don't introduce him here with the tone of the introduction and not have him and Boba Fett coming to blows. Pay attention to where scenes end. So where scenes start and where they end says a lot about what the scene is there for. I know that's a statement of the obvious, but when we have a moment that you have Fennec saying to Boba Fett that there is somebody that you have to appeal to for permission to kill the Hutts, that immediately creates space for, even though we haven't met the character yet, we have created the space for a character who is going to fit that role. Who is the person or creature or alien or whatever that you have to go to to get permission to be able to kill a hut? What power does that character have over the huts? Why do they get to make this determination? Why is there a permission system of some sort and it seems like we we just have to meet whoever this is when the hut situation escalates and we will we're already to some degree even though it's a line set in passing it is a line set at the end of a scene giving it extra emphasis and it's right when we transition from the present day storyline to the backstory and this is the last thing we get in the present-day storyline, because the rest of the episode is the backstory. And so we're left hanging, thinking, who could this character be, and when will Boba Fett have to go and talk to whoever this person is, because something is going to go wrong with the huts. What's that going to be? and then again we've created space for this character so that when we actually go and meet with that character it's not coming out of the blue oh now we have to go and see this character who no it was introduced in episode two that there's somebody out there that you have to go to to get permission to kill a hut nine are we going to get a love interest so one aspect obviously of many a storyline is the potential for romantic interest we don't get any sense in this story so far that there is any attraction between boba fett and fennec and so is there anybody out there we have whip and we have the female tuscan warrior who is training boba fett in the backstory And we just have to wonder, because the female Tuscan warrior is doing all of the training and she is instrumental in the train attack and is somebody who initiates the dance at the end of the episode, is there any tension there? Or is that female Tuscan warrior connected to the chief of this particular clan? Again, it is unclear. Because the whole situation, whether it's the clothing and behavior and the alien strangeness of the Tuscan Raiders, the whole thing's been desexualized. But you just wonder, are they tempted to say, is there any sort of inklings of interest and attraction there? And is it the kind of thing, like in the backstory, we're going to see that character have their be again, some inklings, and then... She dies, and that's tragic and damaging and putting Boba Fett's emotions in the present day, affecting that. So that maybe he ends up where he and Fwip, maybe there's some tension there between the two of them. But he's not interested because of what happened to the female tuscan warrior again i don't know that any of that's going to be in there and maybe it's all too late to throw in as an element to the story but i just wonder it's just interesting that they have someone playing flip and they have him being trained by a female tuscan warrior and he is an unattached male anti-hero character who is the focus of the story often there would be that element worked in somewhere, maybe not in a short series. And so they're just going to avoid it altogether. But it is just one of those open question marks to think about as we head into the next episode or two. Is there going to be an exploration of romance or love or affection in both storylines, which reflect one another and affect one another? It'd be something that I would be toying with, even though, again, the, the, the writers may have ultimately decided that I'm sure they kicked it around, but they may have just decided we don't need it. 10. So, storytelling Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. So there were these commercials a long time ago for Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, where you had one person walking with a chocolate bar, another person walking with peanut butter, and they run into each other, and the chocolate ends up in the peanut butter, And they end up barking at each other. You put the chocolate in my peanut butter. And the other one says, you put the peanut butter in my chocolate. And then they realize they go really well together. Why am I mentioning these old commercials other than the fact that I really like Reese's peanut butter cups? It is this, that this idea of you put the reality into my fiction. Wait a minute. You put the fiction in my reality. The truth is that they need to go together. And when you are writing a fictional story, it has to have elements of reality to it, that you create the rules around your story world, and then you need to follow those rules. And fiction is not reality, and yet we hold it to some standards of reality where when you break from that reality, we think the fiction isn't as good as it could be. So why do I say all of that? Okay, so Boba Fett, this story, it is fiction, and so it's going to be shaped, we're going to be manipulated as audiences, not all manipulation is terrible, but it still needs to feel like reality. And I'm going to give you three examples from the episode where, when you look at it, you have to ask yourself, is the reality... That they're giving us working like we should not see it fracture right in front of us because it pulls us out of the story where we say it shouldn't happen that way it doesn't make any sense for it to happen that way so example number one if the mayor did not send the assassin and we see him down in the rancor pit and he thinks the rancor is going to come out and eat him painfully And if the assassin knows that he was not sent by the mayor, but is throwing the mayor under the bus in this very fearful moment. And if you go back and watch that scene, that fear seems genuine. It's not manufactured. It's not, okay, they're going to threaten you. And as soon as they threaten you, you need to say that the mayor is the one who sent you when in fact someone other than the mayor is the one that sent you. That uh, how the assassin would be acting in this scene would be totally different. And so one of two things is happening, either the assassin knows or truly believes that the mayor sent him and that he's offering up this information to save his life or, but but then we are led to believe by the way the scene is shot and the way the mayor explains things. They, the mayor did not hire the assassin. And if the assassin knew that this is not how the assassin would anyway. So in the moment. You have to have him be truly fearful for that whole scene to pay off. The question is, he, and he's dead now, so we may never know. It's like looking back: is his reaction does it is it in line with what the true story is and how he got hired? Now, obviously, I threw out a speculative idea earlier in this episode, saying that okay, maybe he thinks the assassin thinks he was hired by the mayor because the major domo is the one who did it. When in fact he's not then this scene would work but again watching the scene again that fear is genuine and if he was not hired by the mayor and knew it that's not how the assassin would act and so i'm hoping that it holds up in retrospect when we get a few more episodes down the line where we get the true story of who hired whom and why Uh, that that scene holds up but it made me pause it when i saw it again it's a small thing i hope it holds up in retrospect but okay moving on to the second one more pressingly more immediately fracturing so the hover train comes along and periodically shoots a whole bunch of tuscan raiders now the tuscan raiders they don't have big numbers from what we've seen they have limited resources and this happens periodically where the train comes along and does this. Why the heck haven't they developed a get the hell behind some sand dune strategy? Like they can see it coming from a really far way away and their shots don't accomplish anything. Even if they were to be lucky enough to shoot through some of the windows and hit a couple, it's never stopped. So Why stage it this way? And and really it's manipulative because they want some of the Tuscans to die. So you get that whole bunch of bodies being thrown onto the fire and you get to see Boba Fett feel really bad and decide he's going to do something about this. But... It all, it's fruit of the poison tree. Like it makes no sense that whenever they see the train, that they would just line up on the dunes and try to shoot and leave Banthas out there to get shot and not be hiding behind dunes and just waiting for this thing to go by. If you wanted to establish that they are honor driven people who just simply can't hide because their culture refuses. And so they have to put up a fight, even though it is a doomed one but we don't get any of that they or you could just set it up so that at this particular time they are trapped out in the open when the train comes and they can't get to the sand dunes that they would automatically hide behind anyway that whole sequence it feels and it happens more than once it feels absurd and could have been staged better should have been staged better and then the last one and again it's a little thing but it's wait a minute I need to pause this and just shake my head so the whole hover train thing ends, that hover train thing goes really fast and it has a couple of speed bursts on top of that during the whole sequence. But as soon as the train stops, semi crashes, and the Tuscans, the rest of them, are suddenly right there. And before you say that there was a time cut and that it took them a while to get there, no, the thing is smoking and the sand puffs are still in the air. Like, this just happened. It just crashed. And suddenly the rest of the Tuscan Raiders are right there, even though they would be miles away at this point. Again, it's a little thing, but it's a little thing that over time these things build up where it's, man, you're using some shorthand here where I just don't believe it. And... You can do it better. It doesn't have to be that way. It's lazy. And I don't understand why in the writer's room or when the director is blocking it out that they don't just say, you know what, we need to have a wipe here and make it seem like this is a little bit later. So give them some time to get there. And they just didn't care. They just didn't want to answer that question. And that's not fair to the viewer. It's not, or not fair. It's just, you're not taking the viewer seriously enough in that moment. Hopefully they'll cut that out. 11. Convenient storytelling. We had that quick and convenient glimpse of the thugs attacking the moisture farm back in episode one to establish that those guys are jerks. Then we have the hover train coming by and Boba Fett knowing that raiders can't do anything with what they have on hand. So he goes and and very conveniently the speeders drive by. He sees the thugs knows that that's what he needs. The plan starts to come together. And obviously these thugs have been established as bad guys because we saw that moisture farm sequence. And so it's suddenly rationalizing why it's okay to beat the thugs up and take their speeders. You can't have Boba Fett just going and grabbing speeders from anybody because that makes him seem like a really bad guy. And so we now know that they belong to bad guys, so that's okay. And this is very much results-oriented story construction in all likelihood they dreamt up the whole hover train thing and then they're like okay what do they need we want this to feel like a western where it's a great train robbery where you have the horses catching up to the train and people jumping onto the train and so this is just a futuristic variation on that and so he needs his horses. He needs speeders. And, but again, he can't take them from good people. So we need to give them to bad people. And they end up with these going, belonging to these thugs. And so they ask themselves, well, okay, how can we meet those bad guys so that we know that they're bad, so that Boba's actions are justified? So we need to see them doing something bad. And where can that happen? We can stick it into this sequence here where Boba Fett and the Rodian are being taken out to dig up the moisture gourds or whatever you want to call them and we talked back in episode one about how it seemed like the, the structure of that whole sequence was weird where the tuscan kid shows boba fett that this is going on and then there's a time cut where they end up uh, where the gourds are And now we understand, okay, that was all artificially thrown in there to establish these thugs as being jerks so that they could use that information later. We needed to see them being awful. Well, okay, have them beat up some guy who works on a moisture farm, which, again, evokes the original trilogy, and so making it all the more powerful that we see this horrible thing happening and as if that wasn't enough then hey we'll have those same awful people who beat up a guy at the moisture farm just in case you don't remember that we will have them in this bar grabbing the guy's chips and drinking the poor sad saps beverage and then they end up attacking this poor guy who dares to stand up and say that's not right all of it is just way too easy uh, and convenient storytelling to establish why it's okay for boba to beat these people up and take their speeders he needs those things narratively And character-wise, they don't want Boba Fett coming across as bad, even though he has a history of being a bounty hunter. But this is about him being reborn and about him finding a new path. And so they want him to not be cast in a negative light. And so a lot of this these efforts in this sequence is about making sure that boba fett gets what he needs but he doesn't do it in a way where the audience will feel negatively about him and again it's convenient because like why is that poor sad sap even in this place which is the equivalent of a biker bar with his date when i guess maybe it's the only place for miles around but like why are they even there when these guys are there? It, it just, none of it makes sense. It's all very convenient. And not to say that you don't need some convenience in your storytelling, but this is another one of those areas where it strains credulity. And so every time you strain, it stretches at the fabric of the story. And eventually the story will sag or snap when you put that pressure on it constantly. 12. We thought you were uncivilized raiders. So that was a line from the Pike leader, and it's emphasizing this theme, uh, this idea of, okay, we're going to humanize the Tuscan raiders. And the the Pike, interestingly enough, voiced something that we likely thought and felt back, if you watched the original trilogy when they came out, that the quote-unquote sand people are monsters but they're not. And so the show is doing for us what Boba Fett has done for the Pike, shown us and shown them the true story of the Tuscans. Like you you leap to conclusions, and here we are going to enlighten you. And we get other pieces of their history here that this tribe is different even amongst the Tuscan raiders. It's implied that they don't kill as the other Tuscans do, but that all the Tuscans, they hide since the seas dried up. And so we get a little eco message in there for us that eventually seas and oceans will dry up and just leave dunes behind. And here we get another bit of threading the needle in that we, as I talked about in the last episode, The idea that your protagonist has to have an impact on everyone around them and everyone around the protagonist has an impact on them. And so obviously we see Boba Fett, there's an impact that the Raiders have on him. He ultimately becomes one of them. We get that whole sequence and i'll get more into the vision quest in a moment but he comes out of that with his weapon and he's got all of his tuscan raider outfit we can sell another action figure anyway that he but boba fett has to have an impact on them and he teaches them how to use tech like the speeders and it's all in service of getting back what was theirs in the first place the dune sea and so by giving them machinery he is changing them and we even saw one of it's just one of those little visual clues of the impact that boba has had that we see one of the tuscan raiders fixing slash working on one of the speeders so this is just something they do now they don't just tear it apart for parts that they will be able to fix them and use them And so the threading, the needle part of this is that you don't want to have a character step in and just utterly change the culture of these people. It makes the culture itself not seem very strong or compelling if it can be just changed by one person. But so the heart of who they are, that the Dune Sea is theirs, that is maintained and we're told more about it. But the idea that He is giving them machinery so that they can do the things they already do, but do them better. That's how he has an impact on them. So he's threading the needle. So he's not culturally changing them. He's just allowing them to preserve their culture. It's just a little subtle thing, but I liked it. And then now the vision quest, it's so interesting to me, this idea of, okay, with this character, we need to explore some stuff that doesn't really have anything to do with the Tuscan Raiders or the Huts or the two storylines. It's about this character and his rebirth coming out of the Sarlacc. It it allows him to emerge and become someone new. Interesting then that I guess it's a sand cesarean section that he emerges out of the side of the very, I'll just say it's gross, but the very vaginal Sarlacc. That he emerges from the side over there, and now he gets to go out into the world and maybe distance himself from who he was as a bounty hunter, and also, importantly, distance himself from the history of being the son, but not son, being the clone of Django Fett. And we are exploring this character. That's one of the promises of the series with any of the characters that we haven't spent a lot of time with is that we need to understand them better and tie into their existing story. And they've gone down this powerful path of, again, rebirth and rites of passage. Like he's going through this rite of passage with the Tuscan Raiders. You go on a vision quest, which, you know, is a part of certain cultural traditions. This idea that when you're young, You eventually reach a point where you break from your society, you become an outsider, but during that time you bond with others and you learn what it is to be a true member of this tribe. And then you go through, you're in this liminal place where the rules are different and you end up coming to terms with who you are and re-emerging at the end of this whole process, at the end of the liminal phase to become and reintroduce to the tribe as a full member. Again, I studied some anthropology in college and got the basic outlines of this. I don't pretend to be an expert, but those are the broad brushstrokes. And so you have this vision quest where Boba Fett is dealing with his legacy as Django's son. And again, we don't know uh, a lot about the history of django if all you've seen are the movies you have to really dig into some of the backstory to have a real strong sense of who mm-hmm. django was although obviously in the in attack of the clones mm-hmm. that is a part of that story but Again, you can't ask everyone to do homework before watching the show, and so the show has to be able to stand on its own. And so this whole vision quest part could be a little confusing to an audience member who doesn't know too much about this character. But the visual metaphors are there to see. You have the large tree and the small tree, and it's not that hard to imagine. It's father and son, Django and Boba Fett, that they are the same thing, but not the same thing. And he ends up being trapped in the branches as a metaphor that he is trapped in the legacy of being Django's son and having followed him into the career of being a, a bounty hunter. And his life as a child, he was motivated by his father's death and that dictated his need for revenge. But can he put that in his past now that now he's going through this whole process of rebirth and this rite of passage so that he can become someone new and the ritual at the end of the episode, again, this is the, in in a different life. I am a, an anthropologist, a sociologist, a psychologist. Soft sciences fascinate me. Just the human animal fascinates me. Rites of passage fascinate me and that ritual at the end. To me, it's powerful and it works. It's a payoff to the whole vision quest and the, that maybe from this point on in that earlier storyline, we see Boba Fett become a full member of this tribe and that he is going to help them get through the difficulties that are ahead because some difficulties are most definitely coming, but I'll get to that in number 13, where I make my predictions. 13.
1: 13.
0: Predictions. Predictions. So we have our two storylines. So in the backstory, I think it's inevitable that we're going to have some problems with the gang that Boba Fett beat up in the bar, and there'll be ongoing issues with the Pike and the syndicate that are they're involved with. Since they lost a shipment of spice, and it is a, they're essentially drug lords, presumably, and they're not going to take kindly to having lost one of their trains. So there's going to be a potential war brewing. This is going to be a bigger battle for the Tuscans to face, and they're not going to want to pay the toll that Boba Fett's insisting on. It is going to be interesting. One would assume also that in the backstory, that Boba Fett's going to have to address the fact. Like his past is going to have to come back to haunt him in some way, shape, or form, some fashion. And, but the Tuscans are going to not care. He's one of them now. The past is gone once you go through this rite of passage, but it'll be interesting to see that struggle going on. And then in the current storyline, you're going to have some problem with the huts. That's inevitable, obviously, with. The bad Wookiee as well. They're going to have to start building that up. It seems like the Hutts are going to probably try to move in on the territory and marshal some forces against Boba Fett. And Fwip is going to have to, Garza Fwip is going to have to play a role in all of this. Is there going to be a love interest there to parallel with the female Tusken? Again, I mentioned that before and I'm not fully convinced that's the case but certainly she is going to be involved and we're going to have Boba Fett and Fennec talking about what did the mayor mean? If the mayor is not responsible, then who is it the huts? What do we need to do? Are they going to go and see that person that is referenced there about the person you need to go to for permission to do anything against the huts? And so that door is open. But it is interesting that they're telegraphing little pieces of what is to come But they're also, in the first two episodes, hermetically sealing them to some degree so that they tell an individual story. Like we get to the end of the backstory sequence where we get the dancing ritual at the end of the rite of passage. And that feels okay. We're tying a bow on this. And obviously, as I mentioned, there are a couple of different potential elements of conflict with the Pike and with that gang. And presumably, those two things are going to go hand in hand. But where they're what they're going to do with that, like they didn't give us a cliffhanger so that we're wondering exactly what kind of forces are marshaling against whoop if that's not what it's concerned with right now. But certainly they're going to have to dig into it in episode three. And then again, in the current storyline, we have some tensions, but the mayor seems to be in a point of stasis where it's like, wasn't it me. And so the point of tension is the Huts and the Wookiee, but the Huts are saying, I'm going to leave you alive for now, sleep lightly. And so they're going to have to start building up that conflict. Be interesting to see just how heavily they lean into that in that this episode emphasized and poured more screen minutes into the backstory. Or are they going to flip that around in the next one and spend more time in the current day, or are they going to spend more time in the backstory and just give 10 to 15 minutes to the present day, keep backfilling with the backstory. And then have the last episode or two be very heavily current storyline oriented, where that all culminates informed by all the stuff in the past probably how i would balance it where you lean on the interesting backstory in the first half of the season and then you shift the weights slowly but steadily more towards the current storyline as we have a better understanding of the past leading us up to this moment and then the stories crash together and create the final conflict for the season so that's where my head's at anyway but we shall see they're smarter than i am All right. So that's it for this week. And so this week, I'm going to throw out a different ask at you. If you keep spreading the word about the show, that would be great. But My ask for you this week is go to b13podcast.com if you're so interested and sign up for my email list. I send out an email to say when the latest episode has dropped, and I will very occasionally reach out to say hello, let you know about future plans, and maybe slowly but surely start building up our collective community around this podcast, and hopefully over time have a little bit of give and take so I can uh, get to know you and the people who are listening to this and because what is fandom unless we share it together so anyway i will talk with you again next week sorry this episode was a little longer than expected but maybe more content is better so talk to you next week